0: The reading today is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-10. through 10. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light— we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right, thanks a lot. Tyler, morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. If you're new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you are here. Um, uh, Nick lied to you. We have another announcement. Um, (laughs) But it's really not an announcement. It's more of a financial update that I was asked by the elders um, to give. And uh, so just help me work uh, through this by listening closely. As uh, the great Yogi Berra once, not Yogi Bear, Yogi Berra, who was the great New York Yankees catcher, Hall of Famer, as he used to say, this is deja vu all over again. It was exactly 70 years ago that I stood here and made pretty much the same appeal to you during our first year in uh, this building. Um, I, I will tell you, I've, I've always wanted to lead our ministry here at Redemption Arcadia in a way that communicates needs only when it is, truly is a need, uh, and we have a need right now. Um, Giving to our Sacred Space Project has been really good, as I mentioned a few weeks ago. Um, It's it's been uh, uh, above our hopes and expectations and our needs for this time that we are in right now. So uh, we've been very pleased with that. Um, But that giving, we believe, as we've talked about this, that giving to the Sacred Space Project, project, which has been very strong, uh, combined with, honestly, just sort of the economic turmoil and uncertainty that we're experiencing in our world right now that we haven't experienced in our economy for many, many years, um, the anxiety related to that, uh, all of that combined, we believe, has led to this considerable shortfall in our regular general budget um, operating giving, so just our monthly uh, cash flow. And so um, our audited figures right now—we have them through April. We'll get May's in another two weeks. But our audited figures year-to-date through April show that we are $109,000, or 24% below our budgeted giving for the year so far, which is also 24.5% below what we gave last year through uh, the end of April. Now. Giving patterns in churches. January is always a tough month, no matter what church you're in. January is always a tough month, and we recognize that. But that toughness continued. We found uh, into the usually strong months of February, March, and April. And and so so you know, I I just want to make sure you understand this. We acted very quickly in mid-February. We began to say, Hey, this looks like this might be a trend. Uh, and so the staff, led by the scrutiny of Tyler James, who was just up here reading the scripture, he's our executive pastor, and uh, Stephanie Shoemate, who's our director of operations, but our entire staff, uh, we have cut expenses as much as possible, and we're below budget on expenses as well, and we have spent considerably less than we spent during the same time last year. We've cut a lot of things out, hopefully you haven't noticed, but maybe you have noticed, but The problem is is that it hasn't been enough to make up the difference, and our challenge, of course, is that we can't stop paying for things like uh, mortgage, utilities, insurance, and payroll. And as a result, we are running a deficit, something that we rarely, if ever, run. In fact, the last time we ran a deficit going into June was seven years ago, and it was a fairly significant deficit, just like uh, it is this year. Um, and so we're running a deficit uh, going into the usually lean months of June, July, and August. Um, I, I look out at you, and, and I realize you're not normal Phoenicians, because everybody else is pretty much gone during June, July, and August. But, uh, but it gets pretty lean during uh, the summer, and that's coming up. So what we're asking is for everyone in our congregation to prayerfully, do this prayerfully, um, to look at your general budget giving for Redemption Arcadia and see if there's a way that you can help us to push back against this trend and and push us back toward uh, the black. And so thank you for listening to that. As Forrest Gump said, that's all I have to say about that. So I opened with a Yogi Berra quote, and I ended with a Forrest Gump quote. So that's pretty good. So um, going into our study today, our study of the Word of God and the proclamation of the gospel, we get to start a new series today. I'm always excited about that um, because I love the introduction, uh, kind of getting, getting our bearings straight. Uh, we're going to be in the book of First John for 13 weeks, all summer long, and during this Messiah series that Nick talked about, which by the way, Nick is also involved in teaching that, he didn't mention that, but he and I and, and Tyler are going to be uh, leading that, um, but First John will be part of that Messiah uh, study as well, uh, so it'll be some good overlap. And so it's the book of First John. And if you're new to the Bible, like I was 36 years ago, and I had no idea what I was doing, if you're new to the Bible, first of all, when you come to church here and you listen to us proclaim the gospel and teach the word, you should have a Bible open in front of you And the reason is because you need to follow along and know what we're talking about. But second of all, in the book of 1 John in chapter 4, one of the things he teaches us is to test the spirits, which means just because I'm up here and I have a microphone and I'm called a pastor, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm telling you what's true and you need to be checking me with the Bible. So have your, I don't see anybody moving and getting their Bible. So you must all have them out or at least your phone's out. Yes, thank you guys. You, yes, it can be a phone. It can be an iPad, whatever it is, but have your Bibles out. And if you're new to this, And you're wondering where 1 John is in the Bible, because that can be intimidating too. There's 66 books in the Bible. Uh, 1 John is towards the back of the Bible. It's at the end of the New Testament, towards the back of the Bible. It's conveniently located before 2 John and 3 John. And then the last book is Revelation. So if you hit Revelation, just go a little bit to your left and you'll you'll hit 1 uh, John. So, What we do with a new series like this is we start with some introduction material that gives us some context for the study, and then we get into the study. And we have ten verses today, so it's going to be a lot today. We have some introduction, and then we'll do the ten verses. So, in the introduction, um, I would hope that you would think there should be some questions answered in the introduction. For instance, who is this guy John? Well, there in history, uh, in church history, in the 1st and 2nd century, there are many different guys named John. This is, in fact, the John of the Gospels, the John who was the apostle of Jesus Christ. And, and it's, interesting, it's always been interesting to me. John wrote the Gospel of John as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, he wrote the Gospel of John, and in the Gospel of John, he describes himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Isn't that, isn't that fun? Isn't that... You know, when I get to the New Jerusalem, after I talk to Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, I think that guy would be a blast to hang out with. But then I'm going to say, I want to talk to John, and I want to ask him about this whole humility thing with, you know, the disciple that Jesus loved. Anyway, so it's him. He's the one who wrote it. He was an eyewitness to and participant in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He saw it all. Um, Also, John is the one apostle who did not either die of suicide or a martyr's death. Uh, Judas, of course, died of suicide, but the rest of the, uh, the apostles died a martyr's death. He's the only one that escaped dying a martyr's death, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. Uh, several times they tried to kill John, and somehow, miraculously, he kept escaping. In fact, one time they boiled him in oil. Anybody ever survived being boiled in oil? He did, okay? So I don't, it's just weird. He's the only guy that kind of just died of old age in his 90s, okay? And like I said, he also wrote 2 John, Third John, he wrote the gospel, and he was the scribe for the book of Revelation, which we're going to study in the fall. Uh, Jesus was the one who told him what to write down for the book of Revelation. Now, when was it written and, and from where? It was written in the early 90s A.D., the first century A.D. John was fairly old when he wrote it, and it was probably written from the city of Ephesus where he was the pastor at the end of his uh, life. Two more questions, and these now uh, get pretty thick and really important. So the first one is, who was it written to? This is an important question for academics and scholars to study, uh, and I think it's helpful for us to know this for context. First John is not written in the traditional manner of a first-century letter. This is a letter, but it's not written in the traditional manner. The traditional manner of a first-century letter was right at the beginning of the letter, you would say, hey, I'm John, and I'm writing to you, And then it would be a person or it would be the community. I'm writing to the church in in Colossae or whatever. There's none of that in this letter. He just dives right in. It's very similar to his uh, gospel. There are also a few of the other accoutrements of, of first century letters that are missing. And so some scholars and academics have suggested that maybe this was just a sermon of John's that he preached at Ephesus that was written down and then circulated. But the problem with that idea is that there are several places in 1 John where the author says, I have written these things so that you, and then yada, 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 yada. So that's my Seinfeld reference for uh, today, those of you who have watched Seinfeld. So it's, it's more likely that this letter is what's known as a general epistle, a general letter. That's a letter that was written to be circulated among several different faith communities and churches, probably in the same geographical area that we find at the beginning of the book of Revelation, those seven churches that are listed at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And these churches are all dealing with many of the same challenges, problems, doctrinal delusions, and false teachings. So that leads into the second important question, which is why was it written? What's the purpose of this letter? There are two main themes or two main reasons that John wrote this letter. Here's the first one. We'll take a little bit of time with this because it's very important and it's even relevant to us today. It was written to deal with the heresy. A heresy is a false teaching or a wrong doctrine. It was written to deal with the heresy or false teaching known at that time as Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek, ancient Greek word gnosis, which means to know something. And, and this heresy was the idea, uh, the idea that in, in order to have salvation or redemption or fulfillment in life, you just have to be really smart. That was how you saved yourself. You have to know stuff. You, just, you have to be able to win at jeopardy or something. And part of this heresy, part of this false teaching, a very important part of this false teaching was the idea or the principle that all physical matter is evil and that the human body is a prison that must be manipulated or escaped. The human body is a prison that must be manipulated or escaped. Does any of this sound vaguely familiar to the 21st century right now? Okay? And, and, here's the worst part. Because all matter is bad, physical matter is bad, people in these churches were teaching that the incarnation of Jesus was not real which led to a secondary heresy known as docetism, which means to seem or to appear. Jesus only seemed to be a man. He only appeared to be a man, and that became a rampant um, heresy in the second century because of the beginnings of this Gnostic uh, heresy in the first century. This is a huge problem, so a little side trip here. There are two things that are absolutely essential. And by the way, the word essential does not need the modifier. Absolutely. There are two things that are essential for Christianity to be true. One of them is the incarnation. That Jesus came in the flesh. That he was a human being. He was fully human and fully God. He didn't—he wasn't God who appeared as a human. He was also human. Or else, if this isn't true... His atonement for our sin on the cross means absolutely nothing. You and I might as well die on on the cross for our sins. Which, by the way, wouldn't be enough. Only Jesus as God can do that. And this is biblical. Don't listen to me. This is biblical. In John's Gospel, in chapter 1, he says this. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a human being. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about the same thing. That Jesus said, it's okay, I don't have to only remain God in order to save my people. I am willing to humble myself and become a man and come and save my people. This is biblical. Here's the second thing that's essential for Christianity to be true. It's the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, those who have come to Jesus have no eternal resurrected life. End of story. And again, this is biblical. Don't listen to me. Paul, the apostle, writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. What are we doing here if Jesus hasn't been raised? We could be on Lake Pleasant right now if Jesus had not been raised. And some of you are like, I know. (laughs) I get that. So that's the first reason that it's written it was written to push back against this false teaching of gnosticism. Here's the second reason first John was written. He writes it to explain that in Christ and only in Christ we have eternal life and that the marks of that eternal life, how you know that you have eternal life is that you are pursuing and practicing the truth, righteousness, brotherly love and faithful and faith. So here's the thing that we have to grapple with the next 13 weeks. John is a pastor He has a pastor's heart, so he's extremely pastoral. He understands all that. He's got empathy, compassion, love, all of those wonderful things that a pastor should have. So this letter is very pastoral, but he also says some very hard things, because a pastor sometimes also has to say really hard things. So this letter is pastoral while also saying hard things. There are going to be some hard things in here. So having said that, here's the capstone. This is the culminating force of the book of 1 John, and I'll read it every week because I think it's that important, every week that I'm going to be preaching anyway, because I think it's that important. By the way, John has this thing. If you if you went to high school or college or, or whatever, um, you probably learned that when you write a term paper, you're supposed to put your thesis or your purpose like in the first paragraph or right up front you got to have that right up front that's not the way john writes john puts his purpose and his thesis and all that stuff way at the end of his gospel at the end of first of john so here in chapter five we find his thesis his purpose and he writes this and this is the testimony god has given us eternal life and this life is in his son whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son of god does not have life I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So if you know John's writings, he wrote the gospel specifically so that people would believe in Jesus Christ. And now he writes the letter of 1 John to people who say they believe in Jesus Christ so that they would know that they have eternal life, so that they would know that their belief means something. So he writes to to, to ask people to believe, and then he writes to believers to let them know that they know. This is important to know. So that's the introduction. That's all done. Let's dive into the text. Let me start with that first paragraph, the first four verses. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes... Which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. Right there, so that you may have fellowship with us. He's saying, Listen. You have to have the correct understanding of Jesus in order to be in fellowship with us. This book is about making sure we have the correct understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. We have the right doctrine because that's where we can have fellowship. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, this first, this four-verse introduction is a thick and highly compressed prologue into this letter and is similar yet much shorter than the beginning of of the Gospel of John. So if you take like the first 18 or 19 verses of the Gospel of John and compare them to these four, they're they're very similar, but this is just more uh, compact. And, And what John wants us to understand is that Jesus came in the flesh. He goes right after this Gnostic belief, this Gnostic heresy, right out of the gate. Jesus came in the flesh. He's a human being. He's real and He is the one who gives us life. Look at how many times the word life is used just in those four verses there. And also notice the emphasis on all the senses of human experience to testify as to the reality of Christ. It's like the only sense he doesn't mention is he didn't say, and I smelled him too, he didn't say that. Okay, that probably was a little inappropriate, but I'll bet he did though, because there weren't a lot of showers in the first century. And And then furthermore, look how hard John presses into the... Testimony of his personal experience of him and those who were with him uh, uh, with Jesus. He says, look, I, I experienced him. I, I, I participated in his ministry. I, knew, I walked with him and, and, and was around him day and night for three years. And so many believe that John saying this indicates a largely Greek Christian audience. So in the first century in the New Testament world... There were churches that were primarily Jewish Christians and churches that were primarily Greek Christians, and then there were some that were really mixed, like maybe Rome. Um, the, The scholars think he's writing primarily to Greek Christian churches, so that would, again, be those areas in Asia Minor. And here's what the scholar Leon Morris writes about this. I think this is helpful. He writes that John writes this way to start the letter so that his audience clearly understands that Jesus is not some mythical figure like the shadowy forms we find in Greek mysteries. In other words, he's saying, everything you've learned from all the Greek philosophers, you've got to put that away because Jesus is different from that. And you might hear a little bit of Plato in the background there. Okay? And then in verse 3, there's this emphasis on fellowship. Now, some of you have been around church for a while. You have heard quite often that fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, and some churches even have a koinonia ministry, and and it's a a pretty important word. Uh, The Greek word koinonia means holding, sharing, or possessing something in common. But I want you to understand, this is really critical, koinonia means holding, sharing, or possessing something in common, but not in a communist way. John is not writing about some economic or political ideology here, but rather John is promoting doctrinal purity. He's saying we have to hold these doctrines in common. He's writing this to push against false teaching, so he's saying we have to have this koinonia of doctrinal purity. And I've already mentioned that one of the primary reasons John is writing this letter is to debunk these heresies Some damaging false teaching that had already begun to infiltrate the first century church as early as um, the 50s and 60s even. And he's writing in the early 90s probably. But John wants the reader to know that our fellowship, our common bond, is in Jesus it's, it's not in some teacher, it's not in some ideology, it's not in some philosophy. Our common bond is in Jesus, who came in the flesh, who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross, and who was raised to new life. And that He is our perfect atonement for sin. And any other expression of Jesus, any other teaching of Jesus, any other understanding of Jesus, especially at the expense of these truths, is a false Jesus, and you need to dispense with that. One thing this reminds us of is that Though this letter contains a lot about love, this letter is not just about love, but it's primarily about the gospel and salvation. And then in verse 4, John writes that our joy may be complete. He's saying joy is found in one place, and then that one place permeates all the other places in our lives. Our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. That's where our identity resides because we are in relationship with Christ. And so that's where we get joy. We find joy in our relationship with Christ. And the definition of joy has nothing to do with our circumstances. Our circumstances help us to be either happy or sad. Okay, But joy is something that transcends our circumstances because it's built on a relationship with Jesus. In other words, I can be really sad, I can be really unhappy about some things, but I still have the joy of the Lord. And that's his promise that he walks through things uh, with me. And and I would just say right here, I I think the two most underrated qualities that Christians should have and are repeatedly emphasized in the Bible but not embraced with the fervor we should are joy and gratitude. Joy and gratitude. We should live a thankful life. But I don't don't know, you you should read the books about this, all all the psychology and sociology books about the fact that the more we have, the more we complain about what we don't have. It's, it's, it's a terrible, what's those little wheels that the hamsters run on? It's just crazy. We, we need to be people of joy and thankfulness. So let's get into the last six verses because this sermon is titled Three Lies and a Truth. And you're like, where are the lies and where's the truth? Well, we've had some truths already, but where are the lies? Well, here come the lies and the truth. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So, here you go. Three lies and a truth. We'll start with the three lies. Here's lie number 1, it's in verse 6. We claim to have fellowship with God, with Jesus, even though we continue to walk in darkness. So, uh, remember, John when he writes in the gospel and here in this letter, he is all about how Jesus and God are light. And even Jesus says that about himself. There are the seven great I am statements of Jesus. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and all that. One of the seven I am statements of Jesus is I am the light. And so this is a, a big deal. And in verse 5, we see that in God, there is no darkness at all. None whatsoever. You can look around everywhere you want in God, and you're not going to find any darkness anywhere. He's holy. He's separate. He's different. He's different. And so if we say we know Jesus and yet knowingly, without any repentance, without any confession, continue to walk in darkness, continue to walk in a manner that points to our love of sin, John says we're liars and we do not practice the truth. So here's a contemporary example of what, maybe what John is talking about. I, I read a lot of these essays and these books and these research studies about these things. Um, it's really frightening How many seminary students there are? Do you know what a seminary student... They're in Jesus School, okay? Uh, How many seminary students? More than 50%, according to all the research, more than 50% of seminary students are addicted to pornography, meaning they, they use or look at pornography three or more times a week. Seminary students. Now, you need to understand that only God knows their true heart, but there's no question that they're walking in darkness and in order to heal this, notice I use the word heal. This needs to be healed. This is not something that needs to be judged and condemned necessarily. Jesus has already done that on the cross. It needs to be healed. And the only way it can be healed is to bring it into the light. To, to then confess it. To, you've maybe heard in some of your college classes about the importance of self-disclosure. Self-disclosure. The self-disclosure is good because when you bring things out into the open, you begin to realize, hey, I can deal with that and I can work on that. Confession is self-disclosure. That's bringing something into the light so that now it can be healed. Nothing gets healed in the darkness. If you keep it in secret and in the darkness, it never gets healed. That's the point of this. But I understand why people may want to keep it in the darkness. Because they may be shunned or thrown out or whatever. And that can be a problem. Bring it into the light with trusted people, and then the healing can start because the healing actually comes from Jesus. It comes from God. It comes from the light that's shed on this issue. If God is light, and to walk into the light is to be in fellowship with him and to live life in a righteous way, so we need to t- talk about what that light means. Okay? So what does light do? Now, we went through the B- Gospel of John recently, and maybe you were around and, and heard us talk about this, but what does light do? I think it's worth repeating. Number one, light engenders life, okay? Unless you're a mushroom, you pretty much need light, okay, to live. And, and see, if, if you're living in your parents' basement and you never go outside, you're in trouble. You need to get outside and get some sun occasionally, okay? It'll give you life. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, number two, light provides energy. Light, light helps us to... to To live life to its fullest. And then here's the most important one, the one that's important to John here. Light reveals and heals things that darkness hides and destroys. Light reveals and heals things that darkness hides and destroys. It's a simple illustration, but I think it works. Have you ever walked into a completely dark room and turned on the light and had darkness stick around? Have you ever had that happen? And I know some of you are like, well, what if the light bulb was burned out? Okay, would you stop looking for the loopholes, okay? You walk in, you turn on the light, the light works. Is darkness standing there going, nice try, I'm not going anywhere. No, the light wins every time. Darkness loses every single time. It cannot win against the light. So consider this, It's it's just... uh, the problem with the way people define love, we'll talk more about this in 1 John because 1 John uses the word love a lot, we will talk about this, but one of the problems in our contemporary culture with the way people define love is that love now means that not only must we accept, but we must affirm and celebrate anything and everything that a person wants or does without ever questioning them, without ever saying, hey, do you think this is the smartest thing?" We're just supposed to affirm them right from the get-go, no questions asked. You cannot push back. You can't say, "Uh, maybe you're heading towards thin ice. There's a cliff over there, and you're walking like this. Maybe you're going to fall. You're not allowed to say that. that. That is anathema to what love is defined as today. Love is let everybody do whatever they want, no matter what, no matter how destructive it is. And the reason we're not allowed to cast light on that darkness is because the darkness can never win. And people know that once this is exposed, they might have some reconciling to do. They might have some healing that they need. They might have some truth that they need to adjust in their lives. Okay, This is really important. The fact that God is light means that in His love, He will reveal all the darkness that we embrace that needs revelation, that needs rebuke, that needs correction, that needs healing, that needs discipline, and that needs wisdom. So light, I understand, light can be potentially painful. It's painful when you finally bring that thing out into the light. Very painful. So it's painful at first, but there is no healing that can begin until you experience that pain of first bringing it out. And that's the hardest first step is to bring it out into the light and that's where you'll start to experience healing. Again, you ever think about rooms where surgery is performed? How bright they are? I've had a few surgeries in my life. I do not want surgery in a dark room. I don't care how skilled the surgeon is. Okay. So in this letter, light is a metaphor for experiencing and understanding revelation. Revelation of that which is good and true as well as that which destroys in darkness and in secret so it can be brought out and healed. And isn't it interesting that light is the greatest deterrent we are told to crime? In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 20, everybody loves chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that, Jesus, uh, that God gave his only son. Oh, Okay, read a little further, okay, because there's a rebuke in there. All right, verse 20, Jesus says this everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Light is the great revealer. We don't want our darkness exposed. I understand that. I don't want my darkness exposed. But in his love, because it's actually good for us, God reveals what's inside our darkness. And because he does that, it's it's so that we can then deal with it and correct it and heal it. And we have a choice. John says you can either accept or reject this truth. So he's saying that the grace that saves us is also the grace that gives us the strength by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ to reject the darkness and walk in the light. Here's lie number two, and it's in verse eight. We claim to be without sin. We claim to be without sin. I've had so many similar conversations to this one I'm about to relate to you, but this one is so concise and clear. It happened to a friend of mine who's a pastor that I thought I'd relate it to you. Pastor, a pastor friend of mine uh, was confronted after a sermon recently, ironically, in 1 John. Uh, confronted by somebody asking him pretty aggressively and with animus if he thought she was a Christian. She walked right up to him and said, do you think I'm a Christian? And, and he said, well, I'm going to have to ask you some questions. I can't tell just by looking at you. Um, so he's, I got to ask you some questions. So he said, do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? And she said, of course not. That's a fairy tale. It's a metaphor at best. He said, Well, I have a follow up question. He's kind of working backwards here. He said, I have a follow up question. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? And she looked him right in the eye and proclaimed, I am not a sinner. I am not a sinner. And I need you to know, that is not as uncommon as you might think it is. The number of people who will say, I'm not a sinner, I'm a good person, I am not a sinner. I am a good person. You could never possibly describe me in any way, shape, or form as a sinner. Well, if if you're not a sinner, what do you need Jesus for? Okay? In 24 years, let me tell you, 24 years as a lead pastor, getting a little inside baseball here, I cannot tell you how many people I have come up and tell me that when people go to church, what they want at church is to be told how good and wonderful they are you know, they want to be built up and encouraged, and they want their self-esteem to be pumped up. And, and, and they just don't want to hear week after week of their need for a Savior, their need for Jesus. Why do you have to talk about that every week? It's just such a downer, Frank. Jesus is a downer. <laughs> okay, That we are in no need of Jesus is a lie that we tell ourselves in an attempt to not have to deal with reality and consequences. It's a lie we tell ourselves so that we don't have to deal with truth, reality, and consequences. And I'll tell you, we may be able to deceive ourselves, but do you think we're deceiving anyone else? Um, but in 2017 or 2018, can't remember which, but it's fairly recent, a guy named Seth Davidovitz, who is a, a PhD in e- uh, economics, uh, he wrote a very thick book, very helpful though, a book called Everybody Lies. Isn't that a great title? and the book is about how everybody lies <laughs> and he does he has all the research in there and it's, it's actually it's mind-boggling the research is mind-boggling and convicting and this is one of the reasons why i'm always encouraging people in church to read and study and understand genesis chapters 1 2 and 3 and especially chapter 3 if you don't have an understanding of what happened in genesis chapter 3 the rest of the bible you're going to struggle to make sense out of it you just will you will always have questions that can be answered in Genesis 3. But if you skip that part, it's hard to answer those questions. Genesis 3 explains our nature to us, our nature that we are born into sin, that sin was imputed to us by Adam and Eve. And it's interesting because the more I've studied John in his gospel and in his other writings, the more I've studied John, the more I realize John always seems to have Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in the back of his mind as he's writing. And in fact, when we get to chapter 2, uh, verses 15 through 17, we're going to see that he's actually quoting from Genesis 3, verse 6. It's really interesting. And then here's lie number 3. It's in verse 10. We say that we haven't sinned. I know you're thinking, well, what's the difference between lie 2 and lie 3? We'll get to that in a few minutes. But uh, the third lie is that we say we haven't sinned. Lie 2 is that we're not sinners. Okay? So here you go. The word sin is used 17 times in this short book, five chapters, 17 times. So again, I hear people say all the time, I, I love the book of 1 John. Let's do the first book of 1 John, because it's the love book. It's all about love. It's just about love. We get to study love. God is love and brotherly love and, and love, 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 love. Okay, yeah, but you know what? It's also the sin book. Love, admittedly, is used 28 times in 1 John. That's more than sin. But sin at 17 is still in the top five. And oh, by the way, God is used 62 times. So maybe occasionally we should focus on God when we're studying this book. It's about a lot of things, not just love. And by the way, John helps us to define love in a proper way. Now, saying that we have not sinned becomes a difficult discipleship and and sanctification challenge. So what are those big words? Well, discipleship, these are brief uh, definitions, but they're helpful. Discipleship is knowing God, learning his word, and desiring to submit to his will. So pursuing God. And by the way, discipleship is best done in community and in relationship. That's why we have uh, redemption communities. It's one of the reasons why we have redemption communities. It's one of the reasons we're doing this Messiah study this summer uh, on Wednesday nights. Uh, Discipleship is really challenging to do by yourself. You need... You need the faith community in that. And then sanctification. We talked a little bit about this last week. It's the everyday, lifelong process of discovering the depth of our sin and being freed from sin while also being conformed to the image of God's Son. Remember, we talked about that last week in Romans 8. So good discipleship actually helps with sanctification. But sanctification also comes by persevering through challenges and patiently enduring this world's difficulties with Jesus by our side. Jesus as God come in flesh. And regarding sin, the great reformer in the 16th century, Martin Luther, famously wrote that the whole of Christian life is one of repentance. The whole of Christian life is one of turning from your sin and turning back to Jesus. we, we, We wander off to sin, we turn back to Jesus. The whole of the Christian life is to confess, repent, and come back to Jesus. But if you say you haven't sinned, why repent? Both James and John emphasize the need for confession of sin. But if we haven't sinned, why confess? It's a lie that we haven't sinned. So if you're not sure if you've sinned, just, again, just ask anyone who knows you or anyone who has ever seen you drive on the 101, and th- they'll let you know. Okay? So to review, here are the three lies we tend to believe. We walk in darkness even as we claim to have fellowship with God. We say that we're not sinners, and we say we haven't sinned. So you might ask rightly, well, what's the difference between the last two? The difference is nature and behavior. If we say that we're not sinners, we're talking about our nature. In our nature, we are sinful. And that comes from Genesis 3. And if we say we haven't sinned, we're talking about behavior and act. We, we didn't do it. Okay? And so you've, maybe you've heard me say this before, and it encapsulates both of these lies We're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. In our nature, we manifest our behavior that way. So before we discuss the one truth, let's understand that the fix, the redemption for these lies, is Jesus on the cross. His sacrificial atonement is what makes salvation possible. But we need to come to him, embrace him, and walk with him. And by the way, even as we are sinners in this life that we have left here on earth, if we are in Christ, that is our identity. We're still sinners. But that's not our identity. Once you're in Christ, your identity is in Christ. And that's a glorious and beautiful thing. So here's the one truth. God is light. If we are to walk with God, we must have an accurate view of ourself. So we've talked about how light reveals. God is light. If we walk with God, he will walk with us in encouragement and in discipline. He'll walk with us in fellowship and correction. And he will walk with us in healing And that will only benefit us. But here's one of the challenges we have. So many people want to try to heal themselves before they come into the light. They want to heal themselves and make themselves worthy of coming to God. No, 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 no. God wants us to come as we are because he says, I'm the one who's going to heal you. And so the healing begins when we come into the light. See, the problem, as we've discussed, is that if we believe we are righteous or good enough in and of ourselves or that we haven't sinned, or we're not sinners, it's, it's really hard to walk with God if we have that mind frame. And we may say, not say it this way, we may not admit it, but this is, if this is how we've chosen to live our lives, walking in darkness and not in fellowship with God, that makes us functional atheists. We may not say we're atheists, but functionally, we are. And atheists are fairly famous for depending on their own morality and self-righteousness to save them, which usually doesn't work. I would say it always doesn't work. See, we have to remember that although we like to think that there's a spectrum of belief and morality, we think, oh, belief and morality, there's a spectrum, and I'm kind of over here, or I'm kind of over here. There's no spectrum. It's one or the other. That's what Scripture teaches. Sheep and goats, wheat and tares. There's, there's no spectrum between a sheep and a goat. It's just a sheep or a goat. No spectrum between wheat and tares, okay? So this letter is written to believers in Jesus who say they know him to encourage them in what they know. But this letter also spells out several truths that people who have yet to embrace Jesus need to wrestle with. Do you think that you know God, but are living as though he doesn't exist? Are you believing the lie that you do not sin or that you're not a sinner? That's a dangerous road to be on. Uh, One author I read a few years ago wrote this. I love this. He wrote, I don't believe in God, but the last thing I want is for others to live as though God doesn't exist. How many of us are living in that hypocrisy? And I know you've heard this before, but it's true. Jesus loves you, and he wants to set you on a new life-giving path in your life. So come and talk to us if you haven't done that before. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, again, we just thank you for who you are, and we thank you for what your son has done for us on the cross and that you raised him on the third day to give us eternal life, that in, in him we have salvation, we have eternal life, we have redemption, and we are called to walk in the light. And so it takes courage. It takes courage to walk in the light of who you are. And so I pray that you would give us the courage to do that by the power and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit.